Good morning, church family. <clears throat> I want to say welcome to those of you who are here with us uh, in the house, as well as our online church family uh, as well, wherever you're joining us from. We're happy that you're here with us. Uh, this, this morning, we're actually going to be putting a wrap on our uh, summer series through the book of James. It's kind of hard to believe uh, summer is coming to, to a close, but I'm really looking forward to fall. It's probably my favorite season of the year. And so looking forward to what the Lord has in store for us together as a faith family as we enter into uh, the fall season, as kids go back to school and all, uh, vacations end and all those uh, sorts of things. And also just want to make you aware that next Sunday we're going to be starting a brand new message series that's going to take us into the month of October called A Good Design, Sex, Love, and Marriage, God's Way. And so I don't know if you noticed or not, but our culture has a lot to say on some really important things like relationships and love and sex and even kind of foundational things that we've taken for granted as a culture for millennia that now are in question, things like gender identity. And so we're going to step on uh, all of those landmines over the course of the next five or, or six weeks. We're going to touch all the stuff that's not controversial. And uh, so you guys can be, be praying for me in, in my inbox uh, over the next six weeks. Um, but, but the reality is um, I believe God has a lot to say about these areas of relationship and love and sexuality and, and gender. And they're not to restrict us. They're actually to free us to follow him and experience life and to flourish in a way that we otherwise can't. And so, um, you know, just so you guys know, this is not going to be like a my opinion versus your opinion thing. This is not going to be a, a debate. This is strictly, I'm going to be opening up God's word and saying, here's what it says. You know, what, what you do with that, what the Holy Spirit does with that in your heart, in, in your life is up to you and him. But we're just going to be looking at the word. What does God say about all of these important things? And why is it important that we understand these things and we follow his pathway in the face of a culture that tells us that what we believe is ridiculous, right? That, it, that it's old fashioned, that it doesn't make sense anymore. And so we're going to be looking at those things. For those of you who have kids, I know many of you uh, like to bring your kids in here, or bring my kids in here sometimes as well. Just want to let you know ahead of time, most of the content we cover is going to be PG. There are going to be some times where we step into some PG-13 uh, level things. And so just an FYI, if you haven't had the conversation about the birds and the bees, um, you, you might want to either do that this week or put them in preschool ministry or elementary ministry we have upstairs. They're great. They'll have a fun time. Uh, but if you don't want to have awkward conversations on the way home, go ahead and, uh, and handle it uh, that way. Don't send me any emails. You have been warned. All right. So we are going to be back in the book of James chapter 5. Uh, if you have a Bible, hope you do, go ahead and grab that. Open it up on your device or if you have an old school Bible in print and go to James chapter 5. We're going to cover the last eight verses of the book, 13 through 20 this morning. And if you're new with us, what James has been doing all summer long is he's really just been trying to drive home this point that, that following Jesus is not just an intellectual belief, and it's not just even professing with our mouths that we believe in God or follow the gospel. Because the reality is, how many of you know that it's possible to profess Jesus without possessing Jesus? That is absolutely a possibility. Jesus talks a lot about that in the Gospels. His apostles, his disciples, the writers of the New Testament talk about that. And so what James is concerned about here is that we know that following Jesus is an active thing. It's not just a passive thing. It's not just this intellectual thing that we kind of stick on a dusty shelf and we kind of pull it out and blow it off for an hour on Sunday morning. No, this is something that should influence and affect 
every single area of our lives. It should affect your, how you interact with your spouse at home. It should affect how you uh, respect your parents at home. It should uh, affect really every single aspect of your life, how you spend your time, how you invest your money. It should bleed into every, every area of our lives. James is going, hey guys, following Jesus is active. It's active. Like This should actually affect the way that you live your life Monday through Saturday. And so he's concerned that we understand as followers of Jesus that, that following him, that being a Christian is something that is active. It's not just an intellectual belief. And so James is going to finish this letter with, I think, some of his most important instruction uh, yet. Because the reality is last words tend to be important words. And in the final part of his letter, um, he, he's, he, he wants us to know, or we should know actually, that whatever is on his mind at the, the wrap-up point of this letter as, as the little brother of Jesus, James, kind of signs off and he steps into the pages of history, whatever is on his mind here at the end, we just got to know, is massively important. And so what we're going to see James do today is he's going to give us uh, three commands, and all of those commands are really undergirded with this, this kind of topic or subject of prayer. Prayer. Now, this really shouldn't be a surprise to us, right? If you've read the New Testament, if you've read the Gospels recently, you know that you can often find, oftentimes find Jesus withdrawing from the crowds, going to isolated places, getting up really early while it's still dark, and withdrawing so that he can commune with the Father, so that he can connect with him, so that he has the power to then go out and do what the Father wants him to do, right? So we see Jesus doing that. If you're familiar with early church history, if you read the book of Acts recently, we see that this was one of the marks of the early church, that they, they were ferociously committed to prayer. It was just a part of their lives. And not only that, even in modern day terms, the reality is most big movements of God, you can trace back to the relentless prayers of his people. In fact, an illustration I would use, I would just say, hey, the Christian life without prayer is kind of like a vehicle without fuel. How many of you have ever run out of gas somewhere on the interstate or you had to kind of pull off on the side of the road? Like how useful is that vehicle to you with no fuel? It's useless, right? You, you can't go anywhere, right? You can't make any progress. You can't get to the destination that you're trying to get to. The Christian life is a lot like that. If we don't have prayer, if that's not a component of our spiritual lives, it's just not gonna work the way that it ought to work. And so, listen, if you're like me and prayer tends to be one of the more weak areas of your spiritual journey, your walk with Jesus, my hope for us is that the words of James this morning would really begin to kind of fuel our collective passion for prayer and, uh, and our commitment to prayer, right? So let's dig right in. Uh, chapter five, starting in verse 13. This is James, little half-brother of Jesus. This is what he writes. He says, is anyone among you suffering? What should they do? He says, let them pray. So right out of the gate, by the way, eight verses, all eight verses mention the word prayer. I think he's trying to get something across to us as he wraps this letter up. Right out of the gate, he says, hey, listen, when, when should you pray? What we're gonna see James do, he's gonna give us three real life scenarios when we should pray. Scenario number one, he says, is when you're suffering. Now, that's actually a very kind of generic, broad Greek word that actually, it means kind of like when you're in trouble. When you face any trouble, when you face any trials, when you face any tribulation, when things get hard, when things get messy in your life, is anybody else there this morning? Right? I think most of us, right, we're, we're probably there. Truth is, at least a lot of us are there 
And when we're in those seasons of challenge and difficulty and trial and pain and suffering, what James is asking us to do is a real challenge, is it not? Because the truth of the matter is, I guess I'm guessing most of you are probably in some season of suffering or you're walking through some pattern of difficulty in your life right now. Now, listen, if you're here, you're one of the five people that aren't. You're kind of like a, a, just a smooth season of life. Praise God for that. That's awesome, and, and buckle up, right? Because it's coming, man. We are, we are all either entering a storm in the middle of a storm or we're coming out of a storm in life. The reality is most of us live most of our life in the valleys of life. Now, we get short seasons on the mountaintop and praise God for those seasons. Man, we, we need to come up and get a breath of fresh air. We need those seasons. But most of life is lived in the shadowy valley of uncertainty and disappointment and sickness and financial crisis and relational dysfunction. And because of that, James says, listen, believer, you need to learn how to pray in those seasons. And I think he gives us this as a commandment because he knows human nature. He knows that our natural inclination, when we suffer, when we face a trial, when things in life aren't going our way, our natural instinct is to do anything but pray, right? When we're suffering, when we're facing a trial, most of us tend to instead turn to all sorts of things outside of God to find comfort. For some of us, my hand is raised here, for some of us, we medicate, we self-medicate with food, don't we? It was a bad day at school, bad day at work. You're frustrated with your spouse. Your boyfriend breaks up with you. What do you, what do, you do, right? You go home and you eat a whole tub of ice cream or an obscene amount of pizza, right? You do that long enough and you get up and you look in the mirror one day and you go, man, I used to have a six pack. Now I got a keg. Like what, what happened? Gravity, what has gravity done to me? It used to be up here. Now it's down there. What is going on? So we know we shouldn't have the whole pizza or the whole tub of ice cream or whatever it is, but we do anyway. Why? Because it brings us a sense of comfort. For, for a brief moment, it, it feels good. For others of you, maybe, maybe food is not your temptation. Maybe that's not your drug. Maybe it's drink. All right, so you go home and, and one glass of wine turns into two glasses of wine or three glasses of wine or the occasional glass of wine on a Friday night turns into an every, every day, every night thing. You've got to have it when you get home to unwind, to get to sleep, right? And it becomes a functional savior for you. For others of you, it's, it's retail therapy, right? You're like, man, I, I'm sad, and so I'm gonna go buy some junk that can never fix my problem, but it makes me feel really good in the moment because don't I look so cute in these jeans, right? I really like this new iPhone 11, man. It's got three little camera lenses instead of two. And Lord knows that's what I needed was that third camera lens, right? Or we try to escape, right? And so we go home, and I'm guilty of this as well. You, so you, you binge Netflix, or you watch a movie, and, and the reality is we do that because, man, as long as we're engaged in a story on the screen, we don't have to deal with the pain in our own stories. So we have all these little functional idols and all these little functional saviors that we turn to outside of God. And James is going, hey, listen, beloved, there's a better way to deal and process your pain, and that's to turn to God through the medium or the discipline of prayer. In other words, take it to the one that can actually do something about it, right? That tub of ice cream is not going to fix your problems. That extra glass of wine is not ever going to wash away your pain. But the creator of this universe, the universe wants you, he invites you to come in fellowship with him. He delights in knowing you and hearing from you and answering your prayers and walking with you through the challenges of life. And so the very first command that James leaves us with, number one is this. He would say, believer, you need to prioritize prayer in your life. You need to prioritize prayer in your life. And the reality is for, for most of us, for so many of us, 
This is a secondary thing in our spiritual lives. And James said, no, no, no. You need to take it and make it a primary thing. This doesn't need to be something that you just kind of turn to occasionally when you're having dinner at night or you're tucking your kids in bed or you just kind of randomly think about it. You need to actually prioritize prayer in your life. This is the fuel, right, that, that fuels the engine of your Christian walk with Christ. He says, listen, the, the first scenario, again, is, is suffering. When you're suffering, when you're disappointed, when you're frustrated, when you're going through a challenging time in life, you need to immediately turn to your Father, connect with Him in prayer. But not only when we suffer, He also says we need to come to God when we're happy. Look at the second uh, part of verse 13. He says this, Is anyone cheerful? It means happy. Let him sing praise. Now, the, the concept of singing praise is closely related to the concept of prayer in the New Testament. So James says, hey, listen, if, if you're sad, if you're troubled, if you're, if you're suffering, if you've got tension in your life, you need to, you need to go to God. And guess what? If, if you're happy, if you're, you're, if you're in one of those mountaintop experiences in life, that's awesome. You also, listen, you need to go to God. You need to be grateful. You need to be thankful. You need to sing praises to him. Let me ask you a question. Is it okay to be happy as a Christian? That's not a trick question. You the answer is yes. Yes. In fact, as followers of Jesus, we should be a cheerful people. Think about it. Of, of all the people on the planet, who has more to be happy about than we do? Now, if you grew up in a certain segment of church culture, especially if you grew up in kind of deep south church culture, at least where I came from, there, there seemed to be kind of this distorted idea that to follow Jesus meant that you couldn't be happy and you certainly could never have fun. And so if you want to follow Jesus, if you want to, want to be a Christian, you just need to forget about fun and you need to forget about happiness and you just need to walk around looking like you're angry or constipated or maybe a combination of both. That means you're a good Christian, right? So if you're walking around like this, you're like, man, is that, is that guy angry or is he in pain? I just love Jesus, right? That, that is not the ethos or the ethic of the Christian life. Can I just say, church, you have permission to be happy. You have permission to be cheerful. You don't have to walk around depressed and the woe is me and my life is so hard all the time. You don't have to be fake about it either, but we should be a cheerful people. It's okay to have fun. It's okay to sing praises, to be grateful to God. I remember as a kid being in a church, I was probably eight or nine years old, and uh, I remember looking around in a song. So it's like worship time. They're leaning on the stage. Everybody's looking up at the stage. And I remember as an eight and I just looking around. Everybody looked super old to me. Like it seemed like they were ancient. They're probably like my age, you know. But I was looking around at everybody. And it looked like everybody's at a funeral. Like just, just frowns on their face, arm folded. And, you know, it just looked like they were miserable in life. And I was thinking, man, if this is what it means to follow Jesus, like, I just don't know about this. Listen, friend, if God has taken you from death to life, from slavery to freedom, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, you should be happy on occasion, right? Now, I'm going to get off my happy soapbox and we'll move on. So James says we should pray when we suffer, and that's, let's be honest, that's a lot of life. It's a big portion of our life. But also, when we're happy, so when we suffer, when things are hard, also when things are good and we're happy, we should go to God. When else, James, should we go to God? Look at verse 14. He tells us a third category. It says, is anyone among you sick? And now he gives special instructions for this scenario. 
Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So not only should we pray when things are hard, when we're suffering in life, not only should we come to God and be grateful and sing praises to his name when we're happy, when we're, we're on those mountaintop experiences of life, but we should also come to God and connect with him and share our hearts with him and pray to him when we're sick. So this is part of prioritizing prayer in these three areas at least. In fact, James says when you're sick, you ought to call for the leaders of the church, the elders of the church, so that they might pray over you and anoint you with oil. Now, I think a lot of people get a little freaked out with the whole oil anointing thing, right? Just so you know, there's, there's nothing magical about oil. So if you, uh, you're up, you can't sleep at night, you're watching some religious uh, network on TV and you got some guy trying to sell you a bottle of holy oil for $59.99, don't buy it, right? It's a hoax, there's nothing special. There's nothing magical about that oil. In fact, this practice is only mentioned twice in the entire New Testament, here and in Mark's gospel one other time. There are plenty of times in the New Testament where believers pray for sick people and they're healed and there's no oil involved. But James's point here is that, that oil, at least in biblical times, symbolized anointing. So this idea of setting something or setting someone apart for God's special care and attention. Right, so this is, this is symbolic. The church body, the leaders of the body are coming before the Lord saying, God, we are setting this person aside because we want you to intervene into their life, into their situation. We're asking you to step up and to, to heal them, to meet them where they are at. And listen, our elders do that often here. Oftentimes you'll see us before services, after services, kind of huddled up praying, sometimes in my office. We practice this often. Now, but no, I want you to notice something. Whose responsibility is, is it to engage in this act of prayer? It's the responsibility of the one who is sick, James says, to call for the elders. And so in other words, the leaders of the church aren't supposed to read minds and just know automatically that you're struggling with something and just magically appear on your doorstep one day and say, hey, we're here with oil, we're gonna anoint you and pray. It's the responsibility of the believer who is sick to call for the elders of the church to pray. Then the elders pray in faith over that person that God would raise them up. Now, does God always heal the way that we want and in the timing that we want? In other words, is this some kind of magical formula where we can kind of twist God's arm and he's got no choice, right? Like God's up in heaven. He's like, man, I wasn't going to heal you. I was going to bring you home to heaven. But man, y'all busted out James 5. And oh, dang it, they got the oil out. Jesus, go ahead, send the spirit. I wasn't going to do it. Now I got no choice. No, re the reality is, man, we, even as elders here in this church, we've prayed over many sick people. Praise God, we have seen some people healed. We've seen some miraculous healings, right, that, that medicine has no explanation for. There's also been other times where we've prayed over sick believers and God has chosen ultimate healing by bringing that believer to be home with him in eternal glory. Sometimes God chooses to heal in the present, other times in eternity, but God either way answers that prayer. And so we are to be faithful to go to God in prayer in all of those circumstances and situations, especially when we're sick. We're commanded to do that as part of the Christian life. Verse 16, he continues, he says, therefore, now underline this, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Uh-oh. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Now, this is fascinating because it seems like, at least at a surface reading, that James is connecting sin to sickness 
and confession of our sin to physical healing in our body. Does that bother anybody else? That my sickness, that what I'm struggling with in my body is or could be connected to my sin patterns. And that healing of those things in my body could be tied to my confession of those sins. That's awkward, and that's a little uncomfortable. Now, now just a word of, of warning here. I think we have to be really careful when we come to verses like this because we could go off the rails into heresy as a lot of churches have. There are churches, I know some of you have come out of these types of churches that will teach that if you are sick physically, it is 100% because of your sin. It's because you've got some kind of hidden sin in your life, and if you aren't healed from that illness, it's because you didn't have enough faith. So it's all on you. And can, can I just say that I, I think that is, that is cruel. That is spiritually abusive. It is manipulative. Is all, sin, is all sickness caused by sin? The answer to that question is No. You may remember the story of Jesus and his disciples in John chapter nine, right? They're, they're walking, they pass a, a blind man and his disciples say to Jesus, hey, Jesus, was he born blind because of his sin or the sin of his parents? Do you remember the response of Jesus? He says what? He says, neither, neither it was so the works of God could be displayed in him. And then he heals the guy. You remember the story of Job, right? This, this righteous man and his life is just absolutely wrecked, right? All of his kids die in a single day, all of his livestock. He loses all of his wealth, all of his material possessions. His wife comes to him and says, Job, curse God and die. What a lovely woman she must have been, right? Imagine being married to her. And then to, to top it off, his friends come to him and say, Job, you, you are suffering all these calamities because the sin in your life. So they, they, they blame him. They blame uh, all the sin in his life when, in fact, it had nothing to do with sin at all. In fact, the Bible tells us Job was a righteous man. So listen, you don't, you don't have the flu today because you kicked your dog last week. That's, that's what James is saying here. You, 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 don't, you didn't break your, your arm because you... Uh, cheated on your taxes last year. With that said, are there times when sickness is caused by sin? Answer to that question is yes, if you read scripture. In fact, Paul writes to the church in Corinth and he says, hey, listen, many of you are sick and some of you have even died because of the way that you're handling the Lord's Supper in your Sunday morning worship gatherings. But they were gathering to worship and some of them were drinking all the wine before everybody got there. Some of them were getting hammered. They were drunk in the church service. Others of them were eating all the bread before everybody got there. So some people couldn't even celebrate the Lord's Supper. And he's saying, hey, listen, some of y'all are sick. Some of you have even died because of the way that you're handling the Lord's Supper in an unworthy way. Hebrews talks about how God disciplines and corrects his kids. On top of that, listen, if we live sinful lifestyles, can that damage our bodies? Yes. Right? There's, there's so many of us that actually we eat ourselves to death. Right? We, we, we eat stuff we shouldn't eat and we eat too much of it. And we have all kinds of physical ailments, whether it's heart disease, lung disease, joint problems, because we are not faithful in the way we handle food. Some of us drink ourselves to death, right? Just drink so much and it begins to break down your body. If you choose to live a promiscuous lifestyle, there's all these STDs that certainly can harm your body. Here's the truth of the matter. We are, this is important to the Christian ethic. Listen to me. We are holistic beings. Right? We, are, we are body, we are mind, we are soul. 
Now, we tend to, as Westerners, disconnect the body from the soul. And as Westerners, enlightened Westerners, we tend to think, hey, what I do with my body has no effect on my soul. And James is saying, wrong. Our bodies and our souls are intertwined. They are connected. Again, we are holistic beings. What we do with our body absolutely affects our mental health and it affects our soul. What we do with our soul absolutely affects our bodies and our minds. And so when we sin in our bodies, it impacts our souls. I want you to listen to the words of King David talking about his own sin in Psalm 32. This will be on the screens for you. David writes this, when I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away and I groaned all day long. See, David, all those years ago, recognized that there was this this intrinsic connection between body, mind, and soul. We cannot separate those things. As much as we try to in our culture, we are an interconnected, holistic being. I love the way uh, C.S. Lewis put it. This will also be on the screen for you. He says, you don't have a soul. You are a soul. You have a body. We are holistic beings. And because that's a reality, the second command James gives us is this. He says, believers, learn to, listen, confess your sin. So yes, prioritize prayer, that's step one. But number two, you need to learn how to confess your sin. To God, yes, we're okay with that normally, but he says something that makes us profoundly uncomfortable, he says, and to each other. And again, that makes us profoundly uncomfortable. Now imagine if I, if I just grabbed a mic this morning and I kind of came out into the crowd and said, hey, listen, uh, security you guys, I want you guys to block the doors in the back and we're just gonna go around. Every person's gonna give me your deepest, darkest sin this morning, all right? Just, just, tell, just be honest, we're gonna go through what, what's the one thing that you're struggling with the most. How many of you would be pumped up for that exercise? Yes, been waiting on this day. Yeah. The reality is most of you would get sweaty palms, your stomach would start to hurt, you say, man, I gotta use the bathroom, you kinda slip out the side door. The last time I'd ever see you is in the parking lot sprinting toward your car. Baby, did you get the kids? No, no, they're in the Lord's hands now. We gotta go, we gotta get, we gotta get out of here. We ain't never coming back to this cultic place, Right? But James is saying, hey, listen, there's something powerful about praying with and for one another and in that context, actually confessing our sin to one another. Just like stop playing games, take off the stupid mask, quit pretending like everything's okay in your life. To be real and honest with a core group of people, like we need people who actually know us and love us, who are praying for us and who, listen, this is what we don't like, but we need it, who can also hold us accountable. Because you know what? You know who stinks at doing the Christian life alone? You do. And I do. And every single one of us does because we were never designed to follow Jesus in a vacuum or on an island or by ourselves. We were called to do this in community. Now here's what else I know. Once a church gets past like 12 people, what James is talking about right now cannot happen in the context of a Sunday morning worship service. This type of discipleship happens in circles, not in rows, looking at the back of somebody's head. Which is why, friend, I'm telling you in love, if you're a part of our faith community here, you ought to be in a community group. You need to be in a small group, you need to be in a Bible study or some other smaller setting of believers where you can take the mask off and get real with people. Listen, that's why I'm in a community group. A, because I know I need it. B, I know I can't ask you to do something that I'm not willing to model myself. And just so you know, next month we're gonna have an opportunity 
Uh, for some of you who are part of our faith family who are not connected, or maybe you were connected, but now you're not connected in group life or in a Bible study, we're gonna have an opportunity for you to dip your toe back in. So I wanna just encourage you to be on the lookout for that. Again, that'll be sometime in September. But listen, the reality is if you don't have a group of believers that really know you, that really know what you're going through, that are actually praying for you, that can get, listen, that can get in your face when you're being an idiot, which all of us need at times, here's what's gonna happen. You're gonna live a stunted Christian life. And you're gonna miss out on so much that God has for you in this walk of following Jesus. James illustrates the importance and the power of prayer starting in verse 17. He says this, watch. He goes, Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours and he prayed fervently that it might not rain and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. Now, now some people, uh, even Christians, get a little squeamish around the Old Testament. I just gotta tell you, I love the Old Testament. I love the Old Testament. Some of my greatest heroes of the faith um, are in the Old Testament. King David, Noah, Elijah, right? People who were broken and sinful and far from perfect, but man, they loved God and they followed God ferociously. In fact, this week I went back to 1 Kings and kind of brushed up on the story of Elijah. And it's this incredible story that James is referencing, right? Elijah comes to the king of Israel, uh, King Ahab, who is possibly the most wicked, evil king in the history of Israel. And he comes to Ahab and he goes, Ahab, because of your sin, because of your rebellion, right, because of your wickedness, God is going to send a drought to this earth and it's not going to rain again until I pray and ask it, ask it to rain. Now, the type of courage it would take in those days when a king had the power to end your life in an instant and look at him in the face and say, you are under the wrath and judgment of God. And you're gonna taste nothing but pain and suffering until you repent and until I pray that it rains again. The very next chapter, chapter 18, there's this incredible showdown between Elijah and the prophets of Baal, this wicked false god, right? And they're having this competition. They both set up altars and they're like praying to see whose God is real. And we're gonna see if is Baal real or is the God of Israel real? And it's, it's awesome. Like Elijah is such like a gangster prophet. And, and so they're, they're sitting there, the, the prophets of Baal, or they're praying to Baal, like, please send down fire, Baal. And they, they, nothing happens. And so they start cutting themselves. They're bleeding all over the place. Please, Baal, please send down fire. And Elijah's mocking them the whole time, right? He's like, maybe you ought to scream a little bit louder. Your God might be taking a nap. And he says, he might be in the toilet. <laughs> he might be on, in the bathroom. Go not, he might, hey, maybe he took a vacation. Scream a little bit louder. And then Elijah prays and God sends down fire and it consumes the entire altar. And it proves that God, the God of the Bible is, is the one and the true God. And then he goes out and he prays. And after three and a half years, it finally rains. Elijah prays and it rains again. And here's what I love most about this. James says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Did you catch that? Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And this is biblical, biblical language for he was just a dude. He was just a dude. Now, how many of you are guilty, I'm guilty of this a lot, of looking at people in the scripture like they were different than us? Like they were some kind of, some kind of super saint that had access to God or the spirit or God's power in some kind of way that we simply do not have access to. Anybody else guilty of that? Man, I do that all the time. Man, I read the scriptures and I'm like, man, that's awesome. I wish I could see that in my day, but I'm no, I'm no Apostle Paul. I'm no Apostle Peter. Man, I'm no, I'm no King James, and James is saying, listen, believer, yes, you are. 
Elijah had nothing on you, believer. He was just a dude that loved God and actually believed that God would show up when he prayed. And so let me just ask you, believer, do you believe that? Do you believe that when you pray, you have access to the very same God that Elijah was praying to? Do you believe that you can have that type of intimacy with God? Do you believe that, man, we can pray and ask God for really big things and then step out in faith, understanding that he will meet us on the other side of that prayer? Church, I am afraid that we tend to be far too careful in our spiritual lives, far too cautious, too faithless. We pray weak little prayers and we live stunted little spiritual lives. And James is saying, man, you have access to so much more. Why are you settling for this? James has one more challenge for us before he signs off. Starting in verse 19, he says this. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now, what a great way for James to end his letter. See, James is a pastor. We see his pastoral heart really beaming through here. James cares about people because God cares about people. And the truth of the matter is life for the Christian should be, A, firstly, about loving God with all that we have, but secondly, about loving other people. And part of loving other people in the body of Christ, according to James, is chasing the wanderer, going after the drifter, going after the stray. Now, listen, some have argued, maybe James is arguing that you could kind of lose your salvation here. I don't don't think that's what he's arguing at all. But I think what he is saying here is that we all, even as believers at times, have a tendency to drift spiritually. I know I do. We have a a, a tendency to kind of wander from the the riches of the gospel and the truth that Jesus gives us in different ways in our life. And God's method, according to James, to bring us back to himself is very often other Christians. Now here we we believe in this this doctrine. If you're a Bible nerd, you probably know what I'm talking about. If not, I'll explain it. But we we believe in the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. That those, those who God saves, God keeps to the end. And what James is saying is one of the primary ways to keep us to the end, listen to me, this is important, is through one another. So God saves us, he seals us by his spirit, and one of the ways that he keeps us to the very end is through each other, one another. So this is the last challenge from James. Number three, I think he would say, believer, we need to learn how to watch each other's back. Watch each other's back. Watch my six, bro. Which means, believer, when you see a brother or sister drifting, you don't have the luxury to just think, well, that's none of my business. I guess that, that's their decision. This is, this is none of my business. They stopped coming to church. Man, I hadn't seen them in eight months here. They, they kind of slipped out of small group, hadn't seen them since February. I see on social media, man, that they're treading in some really dangerous waters that could absolutely wreck their marriage and their family. We don't get to shrug our shoulders. James says, no, we go after them. In love, with grace, with mercy, you make that phone call, as awkward as it may be, you send that text message, you set up that coffee date to say, hey man, look, I, I love you, God loves you, we're not the same without you, please come back. 
brother, sister, I sense that you're drifting. This is not God's best for you. Would you, would you come back? We, we love you. We need you. Now, if you're tempted, I think, as a lot of Americans are, to, to read this and think, well, that's, that's for the paid pastoral staff to do that. Or, or maybe that's for the, the elders of the church. They are to be the, the shepherds, the chasers of, of the wandering sheep. I want you to notice something really important. James doesn't address the pastors or the elders here. Look at verse 19 again. He says, my, my brothers. That's generic for brothers and sisters. That, that, is, that is all y'all. If you believe in Jesus, if you're in the body of Christ, I'm not just talking to the pastors, I'm not just talking to the elders, I'm talking to all y'all. Dear brothers, this is for you, right? This is a job for all of us. Secondly, listen, I'm embarrassed to admit this, but I, I meet people all the time here that I think are first-time guests, and they're like, bro, I've been here for like nine years. I, I've been here since 99, man. You were in middle school, right? Like, okay, well, welcome anyway. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad that you're here. Listen, I cannot chase everyone who wonders because we have new families here every single Sunday. I can't keep up with half of you guys. Even all of our pastors, all of our elders, man, we can't collectively chase 600, 700 people. It's gonna take all of us to live what James is talking about out in a powerful way. And so let me just ask you, if you're a believer and you're a part of this faith community, who do you need to go after this week? Who do you need to go after this week? Who have you not seen in a while? Who just kind of quietly disappeared from your community group? Who do you know is dabbling in something that could absolutely train wreck their lives? And I want you to know, it is not loving to look the other way. In fact, sometimes that could be the most hateful thing you could do for them. What James is saying is, listen, we need one another in this journey of following Jesus. Let's watch each other's backs, friends. Let's spur each other on to love Jesus and to, to woo each other back when we see that one of us is drifting away from the truth or the gospel. And the truth of the matter is we can do this and we should do this because didn't Jesus do exactly that for us? Didn't he come after us in our sin before we knew him? Didn't he rescue us when we were wandering from his fold? And didn't he bring us from death to life? And thank God he wasn't like, well, that's their, their business, man. Like, they're, they're adults. They just got to make their own decisions. Just let, let them make their bed and lie in it. No, he came after us relentlessly. He overwhelmed us with his love and his grace and his forgiveness. And now we get to do the same as part of his church, his bride. So church, what we're gonna do now is, is, is we're gonna pray and then we're, we're gonna celebrate the Lord's Supper, all right? And so uh, we have some elements in the back. If you didn't get a little juice cup, cracker cup, when you came in, when I pray, it's a perfect time to slip back and grab it. If you're watching at home, now's the time to go grab your sweet tea and your old biscuit or whatever you got. And man, we are gonna, we are gonna celebrate the Savior that chased us down when we were wandering and rescued us by his blood by his broken body on the tree. Let's pray and then we're gonna celebrate. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we are grateful that you are a God who is on a rescue mission. 
that you don't see us wandering and drifting. You don't see us in the mire and muck of our own sin, loving rebellion against you and just say, well, that's their choice and that's what they want and so I'm not gonna go after them. No, you, you are relentless in your pursuit of us. As, as Spurgeon said, you are the hound dog of heaven. Thank you, God, for coming after us when we weren't looking for you. Thank you that you're a pursuing God. Thank you for redeeming us. Thank you for rescuing us through your son, Jesus. And in light of that, God, would you help us to be a people that prioritize prayer? People that take seriously our relationship with you and taking time to connect with you in a meaningful way, God? Would you help us to remember to connect with you all circumstances of life, when we're suffering, when things are hard, when life is messy, when we're on the mountaintop and things are going great and we're on vacation at the beach, to also connect with you and to be grateful and to sing praises to your name, God, when we're sick, would we not forget you? Would we cling to you? Would we cling to our Christian community and ask them to pray for us and with us that God would raise us up? And God, as uncomfortable as it is, would you help us to confess our sins? Would you help us not to be so prideful as a people that we just fake it till we make it and we just pretend like nothing's going on when we're dying inside? When you've given us a community of brothers and sisters who love us and wanna pray for us and wanna engage in our life and wanna challenge us and wanna hold us accountable, God, would you help us press into that, not run away from that? Would you make us a humble people where confession is just a pattern, a rhythm of our lives? Help us to stop hiding things. Help us to drag our sin out into the light so that you can deal with it and so other brothers and sisters can help us walk through those things. And Father, would you help us to watch each other's back? Would you help us to chase after the strays, to not be intimidated, to send that text message, to make that phone call, to invite that person to lunch, who we know is drifting away, to invite them back in, to tell them how much we love them, to tell them how much we miss them, and God loves them. God, would you make us agents of reconciliation as a people who have been reconciled by your blood on the cross? We ask and we pray. All these things, in the name of Jesus, amen.